You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hello and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I'm Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. We're glad you could join us this week as we start Black History Month. Mm-hmm. We are going to start with Summer of Soul or when the revolution could not be televised, as it's also known. This is on Hulu. It was done in 2021. It's an hour and 58 minutes long and directed by one Mr. Questlove. Right. From the roots. Pretty Ooh. solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He might have the pedigree to uh, be able to direct such an epic production. One of the few people I think we could trust with this endeavor. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad they asked us before they did it. <laughs> Irrelevance be damned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would just like to say at the beginning that this is some amazing footage. It is so crisp and clear. I was just like, wow. And the colors were so bright. And part of that is because this took place in 1969 and everything was bright in 1969, right. in my opinion. The brightest, most fluorescent yellows and oranges. Yeah. The amazing clothes, the amazing hair and the styles. Yes. I loved everything about it. It was really fun to see, which anytime there's kind of historical footage and stuff, I always am like, oh. Their hair was on point. Mm-hmm. How do they keep the white piping and their white boots and everything looks so good? You know what I mean? Like, I can't wear anything white. Like, white pants, absolutely not. No. But that didn't seem to be a problem for other people back in the day. No. They were rocking it. They really were. So, beyond my complete drooling over all of that fun stuff. So, the story with this is that the footage was shot for the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969. Over that summer, there were several, I don't know, sessions? Six weekends, yep. Yes, okay. So they shot it, and then it just hung out in a basement, the footage, for 50 years. So I don't know what the conditions were in this basement that they were perfect for preserving (laughs) whatever they shot this on, Mm -hmm. but it really worked out. Right. Mm -hmm. I hope they keep mummies down there, too. It would probably work out. I hope so, too. Yeah, it's very, uh, seems to be very dry. (laughs) Yeah, so in 1969, in the summer, they held a concert series. So every weekend for Mm -hmm. six weeks at Mount Morris Park in Harlem, New York, they had a free concert. And... This wasn't just some, listen, we got some nice, cute local artists coming. These were amazing headlining artists. Right. You could see like 40 or 50,000 people showing up every day. It's just a sea of faces smiling and dancing. And you have old people and young people and babies and men and women, people dressed in suits, people dressed in bell bottoms. Yep everything just come together and be like, listen, we're all going to listen to Stevie Wonder and we're going to fucking love it. Yes. They said over 300,000 attendees were able to attend for free. 
which I was, I was like, hell yeah, I love that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. one of the things. So unfortunately, this is the same summer that Woodstock happened. And so this ended mm-hmm. before Woodstock, I believe, but because of Woodstock happening, that took all the news and no one really cared about this. Yes. And Woodstock had amazing musicians as well. Don't get me wrong, but this was a whole summer and it was free and it was a peaceful gathering and it was just amazing. Right. It was a total party atmosphere. This is showcasing music that's changing the black community, kind of reflecting some of the signs of the times and protests. I mean, there's a lot of heavy topics discussed right during Mm -hmm. the documentary and kind of reflected in the different music that they chose the acts that were there, but it was just, it's amazing to hear it. It's, this is one of the documentaries that's made me the happiest to watch because there was just amazing artists and the music was so catchy. It was Mm -hmm. really cool. It was, I loved watching it and I'm glad that they were able to get the footage and put it out there. Part of what they did also was, have people who were at the festival look at this footage and watch it and talk about it. And to look at their faces while they're watching it is amazing. Cause some of these kids, some of them were kids at the time. Some of them Mm -hmm. were a little bit older. They have some of the people who were artists there also talking and watching the footage. And it just, it's amazing to watch them remember it and you can just see their face light up. It's beautiful. And so positively, Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was something that really resonated with them. And just, yeah, to see the look on their face as they were able to view the footage again, probably for the first time. I mean, if it's been locked away all this time, Mm -hmm. it really seemed to be a really welcome experience for them. And I liked that. Me too. So we have to keep in mind the time frame of this. This is 1969 and um, right in the heart of the civil rights movement. And they discuss how untrusting the black community was of, well, just the government and people in power and well, rightly so, but they say police. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. Well, obviously police, but they were talking about how Kennedy, Robert, I phrase that JFK was shot. And then you have Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and then Malcolm X was killed and then Robert Kennedy was killed. And so this all happened in a span of like six years or something. And so they felt a little defeated and, and I thought, that's what made you defeated? Why did you ever have faith in our system even prior to this? Right. It's not made for them. Right. It wasn't made for them, unfortunately. So, yeah. And there were some interesting practical steps that they took. For instance, um, the distrust of the police, I mean, pretty reasonable from their perspective. Mm -hmm. So the police weren't providing security. It was the Black Panthers. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's fucking awesome. And they're like up in the trees watching the crowd and stuff like that. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I mean, good vantage point. I love that. I mean, don't break an ankle when you drop down because that's not going to help anybody. But that's right. Please be careful ascending and descending. But uh, nonetheless, (laughs) it was creative, right? Brilliant. And they said they had some in plain clothes in with the crowd and they had Mm -hmm. some that were in uniforms and they really had no problems. This is a very peaceful event. Unlike when the Hells Angels Mm -hmm. tried to police the Monterey Festival, pop festival or something like that in California. (laughs) And that Mm -hmm. ended very poorly, I think. So didn't go well. No, no. So uh, when they first mentioned the Black Panthers were helping to be security, I was like, oh, 
Oh, but no, this one actually worked really well. Right. So we talked to Dorina Drake. She was an attendee. Like you mentioned, they, they did have some people kind of discuss their experience here. So she said she was looking forward to the festival. She is in that transition between, you know, graduating high school and going into college. She's living in Harlem and she's able to walk there with her besties, which was super cute. Mm -hmm. Um, She mentions that it was so hot. And I've been thinking about that ever since she mentions it, because a lot of the acts had like long sleeves and leather pants and all kinds of stuff. And I was like, you got to suffer for style. I totally get it. But that Mm -hmm. must have been. So, uh, I hope they were hydrated. Uh, Yeah. So hot. So Dorina mentions that she felt really safe. She was happy in Harlem. There was a rich culture there and it was just overall a pretty good place to be Mm -hmm. for this festival. Right. And they said it was a safe place to be black. Right. So you felt like Mm -hmm. you could just be black and not have to worry about getting injured in the process, I guess. There's not a process to being black, but you know what I mean. Right. It's a place where you can let your guard down, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just be yourself. That's the kind of read that I got on it as well. Yeah. And I'm like, how lovely. Unfortunate they can't do that everywhere, but I'm glad that they had a space. Mm -hmm. We also hear from Daryl Lewis, who is an attendee. Uh, He's a college kid. He said, this is a summer that's associated with violence. Again, you know, mentioning Malcolm X and Dr. King and kind of, the ambiance of black America was fed up and also divided between people who were doing a peaceful protest situation and an approach to betterment. And then there was also the people who were less peaceful. (laughs) It's just like, you know, kind of understanding on which side of the line you fell. Mm -hmm. There's fear and rage and boiling over of those kinds of things. Yeah. I think that's a very difficult statement when you hear people talk about, well, if they would just, you know, there there's nonviolent ways to protest, there's nonviolent ways to do this, and they're just blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, people talking out their ass. But at what point do you get so fucking fed up because nothing is being done when you're being nice and peaceful and asking politely for shit that you just right start making change, right? You start forcing change because change never happens peacefully. Mm-hmm. I don't care what they fucking say. It's I get it. Yeah, at some point you have to move forward. Mm -hmm. I totally understand. Yeah. We talked to Mr. Reverend Al Sharpton, Mm -hmm. who is a minister and an activist. He comes on a couple times throughout this. Mm -hmm. But he was talking about how after the death of Martin Luther King Jr., there was a lot of violence across the country. And people were afraid for this festival that you might have violence again, when you get this many people together, period, they were afraid with all the climate, the political climate escalating as it were, that this would be a violent event, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it turned out beautifully. And, you know, his comment was, we needed the music. We needed that to help heal a little bit. Right. And so early on, we see that again, Stevie wonder was there. He's playing the drums. That was really fun to watch. Mm Mm-hmm. The Chambers Brothers was another act that I'm not necessarily familiar with, but they were out there kicking ass. And they had amazing hats. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, the stage, the stage costumes and things were just <laughs> I know. so fun. So good. B.B. King makes an appearance, of course. Mm-hmm. Herbie Mann is another name that, you know, might resonate with people. 
the man at the heart of this, the organizer, is a man named Tony Lawrence, who is the producer and director of the festival, also a lounge singer. So I'm like, was there snapping involved, do you think? Was it? I hope so. All I can think of when I think lounge <laughs> singer is Richard Cheese, and I'm hoping he was better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have any good examples of lounge singers, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, so Tony may be the first. Mm-hmm. So we talked to a guy named Alan, who's the assistant to Tony Lawrence. He's talking about how much Tony hustled and leveraged politicians and music acts to make this happen, right? So they actually had support from the city of New York and, you know, kind of the promises and things that he he was able to pull off to make sure mm-hmm. these big acts came. Because, I mean, he's sort of a nobody, you know, in booking and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. And for booking, they had talked about, we talked to Alan Leeds, who's a music manager. He said, the fact that he got any of these people because most managers don't want to book festivals like this because it's free. So they don't think they're going to get paid. Yes. I, I completely understand. I don't know how they got mm-hmm. half of these people. Right. And then they also talked to, um, Ellen talks about the logistics are crazy because they're building like a giant ass stage. Mm-hmm. How did they come up with a decent sound system that reaches back throughout the whole crowd? Mm-hmm. Again, six consecutive weekends with these big acts is risky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sort of, they talked to the people who shot it, who filmed it, and they were like, well, yes. we need you to, <laughs> there's no lighting, so please make the stage point so that the sun can, you know, kind of illuminate mm-hmm. everything we need it to. So, <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of consideration. Yeah. Right? I would have never thought of that. Yeah, there are a lot of trees and stuff that would block it, so you'd have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you, again, consider, you know, we talked about like the fire festival and things like that and sort of the big, I don't know, things that are necessary to pull all this shit together. And I just have a feeling that they weren't working with a ton of money, like a huge budget. So it was fun to hear them talk about like how they kind of pulled it off. Yeah. Tony seems like the best hustler ever. Like, he right? would t- promise one person something, but that promise was predicated on the fact that this other person would also do what he promised. And, you know, it was just this big circle. And if one person fell through, the whole thing might have fallen through, right? It's right. It's precarious, but it seemed to have worked. Also, who did he get as a sponsor? He got a sponsor for this. Um, Maxwell House, right? Maxwell yeah. House Coffee. Yeah. Yes. And that was really fun. So that was kind of built into some of the advertisements. And I was like, I wonder if I could get a poster of that. That was really fun. It. I mean, it's amazing. That's... I mean, I love music and I love coffee. And if I could have both on one thing, that'd be great. Absolutely. So the mayor of New York City, John Lindsay, mm-hmm. he was all for it. They brought him up on stage, talked to him in that. And Tony referred to him as their blue-eyed brother. He was a white man, but he seemed to be very comfortable in Harlem with the Mm -hmm. communities of color, be it brown or beige or whatever, because Harlem has a lot of different ethnicities, really. But he was a fairly liberal Republican. He was popular among the Blacks. He was in the streets with them after, like, Martin Luther King died Mm -hmm. and, and just seemed like a good cat, right? It's rare that you see that in a politician. Right. He was big on anti-poverty programs. And so I think maybe they got some representation from an unexpected source, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I wish that the politicians would listen to the people more often, but he seemed to be such a good captain. Yeah. 
the right guy at the right time. So mm-hmm. I was happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was good. That helped get New York City behind the festival. Mm-hmm. We talked to Musa Jackson, who was a festival attendee several times throughout this. He was just a little kid. He went with his mm-hmm. family. He said it was amazing because walking around, you just saw these beautiful black faces everywhere. You're surrounded by black yes. people. Mm-hmm. And how beautiful would that be to see yourself represented everywhere, essentially, at that time, which was non-existent in a lot of places in the country. Yeah. I liked that he talked about all the food vendors that were there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he remembers specifically the orange costumes of the fifth dimension. And he was in love with Marilyn McCool. And I just thought that was, he's like, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And boy, she's a stunner. That is for certain. And she's yeah. got some pipes. Yeah. And she still looks amazing. Yeah. They show, again, uh, quite a bit of the performance or big chunk of performance from the fifth dimension. And that was really fun because not only Marilyn was watching the documentary footage kind of as a commentator, Mm -hmm. but then Billy Davis Jr. also was there and they were able to see it together and just the Mm -hmm. nostalgia on their faces. And they were like, we were such babies. It was so (laughs) cool. (laughs) It was cool. And to watch them sing, you know, Aquarius and let the sunshine in, which is what I knew them from first. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I'm a huge fan of hair. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is they were talking about how they were trying to get in to see the musical hair. Like, it was so popular. Everyone wanted to see it because people were naked on stage. Naked, and yeah. All the to-do, yeah. <laughs> and so they couldn't get in. And at one point in time, they were in a cab and someone had left his wallet back there. So they get this wallet. They get out. They call this this gentleman. They're like, hey, we have your wallet why don't you come to our show tonight and we'll give it to you. And so this cat comes, he sees the show. He loves it. He comes backstage, he gets the wallet and they're like, or no, it was one of the guys from uh, fifth dimension that lost his wallet. Yes. Sorry. And then this guy called them. Yes. And so he didn't want any money or anything, Mm -hmm. but he's like, Hey, I've seen your show. It's amazing. Why don't you come see my show? Cause he happened to be one of the producers of hair. So they got to go see the show. Mm -hmm. And as they're listening to the music, cause Aquarius is like the opening song to hair. They're like, we absolutely have to fucking do this. And I love that they did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was really fun. And then to hear that everybody thought the fifth dimension was white from their sound. Like they I don't know. It was almost like they got some shit for not sounding black enough, but also people everywhere were receptive to their sound. So that was really interesting to hear about like some of the challenge that they faced, but also like how it had worked for them in some mm-hmm. ways. And um, that was really, it was really interesting because of course I would never have thought of that. Yeah. I wouldn't either, but at the time yeah. white people were upset that they weren't white and black people are upset that they weren't blacker and uh, weren't black enough. Yeah. I, I feel like that sucks. You can't fit in anywhere. And all you're trying to do is perform and sing music and music seemed to be kind of segregated into different categories. But this late sixties, early seventies is when it starts merging a little bit more. I feel like. Mm-hmm. And Aquarius let the sunshine in was the biggest record of 1969. Yeah, it was <laughs> damn dirty hippies. Yeah. We love it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. Um, So then we kind of move into the Edwin Hawkins singers and they're doing Oh Happy Day, which has got a full gospel choir. 
Mm-hmm. They're out of San Francisco. They're so kind of initially a Pentecostal church. Well, the Pentecostal church was pissed, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have fun. Yeah, no dancing, no mm-hmm. clubs, any of this. And kind of that music was being associated with, you know, kind of a radio play and whatnot. So mm-hmm. interesting, an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, they had a lot of gospel singers on there, which I liked. I am not a religious person, but when you listen to black gospel music, you can't help but dance and Mm -hmm. feel something, right? It's amazing how much they can make you feel. And they had pop staples and the staple singers. Mm -hmm. Mavis Staples talks a lot throughout this. And it's, I love hearing from her. Professor Herman Stevens in The Voice of Faith, Claire Walker in The Gospel Redeemers, and Mahalia Jackson, which was like the biggest she was like a really big name and everyone was so excited to have her there as a gospel singer. I mean, some seriously powerful voices. Yes. What I thought about listening to these, cause I'm not familiar with these gospel singers and listening to their voices, these women who have these strong, deep, sometimes raspy voices. I remember that Janis Joplin, who I'm a huge fan of Janis Joplin, but she loved this kind of music and she loved Mm -hmm. the blues and the black singers. And that's who she was emulating. She wanted to sound like them. And I understand why. Yeah, seriously inspiring. I really liked what Greg Tate had to say throughout a lot of this. Mm -hmm. He's a musician and a writer. And he's kind of discussing that black Americans could only be fully expressive in some of these church rituals. So that's maybe what we're being drawn to because the authenticity, you know, they're able finally to be free and talk about or mm-hmm. sing about some of these things that they're, they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And that I was like, wow, to only be able to express yourself in ways that was, you know, okay <laughs> with society or whatever, you know, I just, I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, you still see it today, right? If a, Black woman mm-hmm. gets upset, yeah. she's labeled angry black woman. If if a woman cries, she's too emotional. It just, you see it today, even that, that there are certain ways that are acceptable to behave to fit into society. So it's right. fucking stupid, right. but here we are. I like how he said it was like, it's an eruption of spirit was what he said. When you just get up and you dance and you just almost can't control it. And I love that. Like you, it's no longer you, you're just doing it with the music. In the spirit. Yeah. Al Sharpton at this point comes back in and he's talking about gospels therapy for the people. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're not concerned with <laughs> talking to psychiatrists, but they're dealing with the stress of being black in America mm-hmm. and therapy wasn't a thing. So this was a form of expression and release for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that they had it. I don't know. I, it certainly wasn't enough, but something at least, right? You know, yeah, certainly creative and adaptive. So that's crazy to think about. We see a very young Reverend Jesse Jackson. He appears at the festival to minister to them. And I wonder if they did the gospel and the ministering on like Sundays or if it's just like sprinkled in, sprinkled in, like, listen, I've seen you Mm -hmm. dancing. You need Jesus right now. I don't know. (laughs) But he was there talking about the night that Martin Luther King was shot. And I don't know Mm -hmm. why I didn't know that he was there that night with Dr. King. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't either. I mean, they're both influential. So, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, they were fighting the same fight together. So it makes sense that they would be together. I just 
don't know that I'd ever thought about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they started singing. Mahalia Jackson was singing and she asked Mavis. She's like, I'm going to need you to help me with this song. And Mavis was like, that's the highlight of her life. She looked up to this woman. It was her idol. And now this woman is like, listen, girl, we got to do this together. I need your help. And it was one amazing to watch these two women. They have incredible voices sing together. But to know how much that meant to Mavis, even now, she's like, that was the highlight of my life, period. And I love that, that she got to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So Mavis is singing Precious Lord, which was Dr. King's favorite song. Mm-hmm. And it's just a stunning performance. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. There are no words. I, I mm-hmm. yeah. Again, I'm not a religious person, but it's just the performance. It moves you. It really does. Mm-hmm. It really does. At this point, we kind of transition out of gospel, um, a little bit more Motown. So David Ruffin comes out and he's singing My Girl. Yeah, he is. <laughs> and you know what I love about him? He had just left The Temptations, right? So he's on his own. But he looked a little bit like he could have been doing computer work. Like he had his little <laughs> glasses on. He wasn't like this hip, slick thing. He looked a little nerdy. And I loved that. I loved that. Yeah, there's a description, and I didn't write it down, but it's like, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, and I was not expecting David Ruffin to walk out. I know! I'm like, oh, all of those are true, but I'm like, not so on the heartthrob side of things, but like, he's got a presence. Oh, I those women, literally, I was waiting for them to throw their underwear on stage. They were, like, passing out almost. They were so into him. It was amazing to watch this. Oh my goodness. And now you know why men sing. I mean, like, now you know why guys get into music because yeah, a lot can be forgiven for a smooth voice. A sultry, a sultry tune, yeah. Yes, yes. But the falsetto part of it, uh, just, that part (laughs) was, just blew me out of the water. Yeah, you don't expect it from someone who's that tall and dark and (laughs) handsome, right? You... You expect no, a little more like not. Isaac Hayes or something. I don't know. Um, let's talk about Gladys Knight. And her pips. Let's shout. Can we talk about Gladys Knight and the pimps and white men can't jump and how <laughs> I've had to tell Woody Harrelson, no, it's pips. Pips. That's almost the only line I remember from that whole movie. But every time <laughs> I hear about Gladys Knight, I always think of that line. Yes. No, they are pips. I don't know what that means. I don't know where they came up with that, but they are pips. And I like that she was a headliner right. and she had three men being her background singers. Yes, she did. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Get back there where you belong, man. Yeah. And she looks stunning. I mean, she's been beautiful forever and still just killing it. Yeah. She's taken aback by the size of the crowd. Yeah. She was like, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They do Heard It Through the Grapevine standard a classic Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. amazing okay can we talk about how much those pips were dancing and how the fuck were they not winded when they were singing they're getting down i guess it's breath control i mean like (laughs) i guess it just i'm just amazed (laughs) again in like full suits and it's like a billion degrees outside so yes yes i don't want that to uh kind of fall to the wayside I love that Gladys talks about all the Motown artists lived in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Can you imagine what an amazing neighborhood that would be? 
my God, those barbecues <laughs> were on point. Uh, right on. So talking about Charlie Adkins, who is kind of the choreographer. He's working with these acts in the basement all day. He's a bit of a father figure to them. So they go in at 7 a.m. They come out of the basement um, if he lets them, if they get their shit <laughs> down and together. And I thought that was really funny mm-hmm. that, um, you know, because they were able to do this and the sound, I mean, was so popular. They traveled the world. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. It is crazy. And and it was, it was new, right? Because for the longest time... Mm-hmm the black people weren't able to have their own sound. They had to either fit into what we wanted or not. So I'm not to say they didn't have blues and jazz, but it wasn't going to be the mainstream. And so to move into that mainstream media, not only for the artists is huge, Mm -hmm. but for the people seeing them, that's representation. And that's showing you that we can do anything. We can be anything to see black women up there, to see black men up there being successful. I can't imagine how powerful that is. Now you did touch on the fact that I think a lot of a lot of their sound was stolen by people. <laughs> That's a whole other topic, I guess, and, and thing to Absolutely. discuss. But that must have been really frustrating as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Gladys kind of ends talking about the celebration of Pride in Harlem during this festival and how great it really was. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was neat. Mm-hmm. And then we really change because then Sly and the Family Stone come out, and they are certainly not wearing. The suits and the matchy matchy, mm-hmm. they are funky as hell. Well, my favorite part about this one, I love Sly and the Family Stone, <laughs> but I love that we're talking to Daryl, one of the attendees. He's like, "Oh, oh, they weren't in suits, and we were suit and suit kind of guys, right? They thought that's how you were supposed to be." He's like, when "These cats were in suits, and they had a white drummer." I mean, listen, we all know white people can't keep a beat, <laughs> and so he was like, "What?" And they had a woman playing trumpet. Come on. Like, they were breaking all the rules. Yeah. A lot of challenging of expectations in a mixed race group. However, Mm -hmm. can I say, not only this drummer must have had balls of steel, but he's wearing, like, a leopard print fringe getup. It is really (laughs) something to behold. (laughs) Do you think he was like, if I distract them enough, they won't notice I'm white? They'll just be like, that vest. I mean, shit, he must have been good. I don't think Sly would have put up with less. Right, right. Right. Sly has standards. Right. (laughs) But Greg Tate mentions that this is the Ministry of Funk, and I loved that. I thought that was a fun line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. I've I've listened to Sly my whole life, I think. But. Yeah. Everyday people. Like, does it get better than that? And Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I might not know all the words. But I fucking know that one. One of the things I really like is Daryl was talking about, again, they were suit and tie guys. But after they saw Sly, no longer suit and tie guys. So, like, listen, we can wear bell bottoms and fringy vests or whatever the fuck we want. It's it's wide open now. The world mm-hmm. is ours. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we move into uh, Mongo Santa Maria mm-hmm. playing Watermelon Man, which is kind of categorized as a combination of Cuban and jazz. I can dig it. I can totally dig it. Yeah. I'm not familiar with this band, but we were showing the crowd and I'm pretty sure I saw one of the actors from 
the warriors in there, like wearing the vest and everything. It, it I swear uh-huh. to God, absolutely one of the warriors was there. I mean, I love it. Mm-hmm. This again is super catchy and kind of hitting on a lot of that. I don't know, taking of different cultures and mixing it all together and finding a new sound in between Mm -hmm. and how it resonated with people and how much they loved it. And you can just see it in the crowd. And it's really fun. It's really cool to watch. Well, and we talked to Lin-Manuel Miranda Mm -hmm. and I assume his father, Luis Miranda. Yeah. I don't know. Possible a friend, a father, a family member, Mm -hmm. someone with the same last name. And they speak about how the festival brought kind of all the different black cultures together. You have Caribbean, Afrocentric, Latin, Cuban, and that was kind of a mixing and melting of the brown communities. And mm-hmm. Harlem had a lot of those different ethnicities. So this festival allowed them to all come together and celebrate. And they seem to have music for everybody there. Right. So it's a bit of a cultural nexus that all this is kind of melting and blending and coming out with something new Mm -hmm. and how much, again, people really responded to it. So, you know, the drums unite people and it tells the old stories. This is kind of what Lynn had, had kind of tried to explain it. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was neat to hear about that. I sort of wanted to talk a little bit about Jim McFarland, who was a tailor Mm -hmm. at a custom tailoring Ori's custom tailoring mm-hmm. and he talks about Harlem being the melting pot of black style so then we talk about everybody's wearing a dashiki everybody's got natural hair like there's a transition going and so people are really exploring style and having a lot of fun with it and I don't know it was just really fun to see again they're showing a lot of footage of people doing whatever they want and yeah that's cool living their mm-hmm. life living their best life yeah Ray Barreto also was like, they called it Nayurican. So it's a combination of Puerto Rican and New York. I think I've heard this phrase before. But my first thought when I was watching him play was that I should let Lane watch this so he can see what you can do with an upright bass that is more fun than just orchestra. Right. So they had a bit of a canon situation going on, right? So like they were building off uh, drums and bass Mm -hmm. together to come up with something funky and weird. And it was really, it was, so interesting to hear it mm-hmm. and like Sheila E was in the documentary talking about what she had learned from playing with Ray and like mm-hmm. how to approach drumming and, and things like that and it was it was wild yeah Denise Oliver Velez she's a professor and activist she's kind of the one who explains how how East Harlem has Puerto Rican Cuban African-American Black Panamanian And so they brought this combination of African and Cuban music and Puerto Rican and Cuban music and just melding it all together to make something new. And she talked about growing up there and how there was music everywhere. And that seems like such a happy place. Like they try to portray Harlem as being a really dangerous, violent, horrible place at this time. And I'm sure there were absolutely, there were, there were problems. There were drug problems in that, but it also seemed like, a community like a proper community where people helped each other and looked out for each other and you know it's I don't know it just seemed like a really the way she described it I'm like oh that seems really nice you know right it was pervasive the drums were everywhere they brought people together it was 
a celebration. Like, and it was mm-hmm. just, it wasn't something you thought about. It just was right. there. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Can we also agree that Ray Beretta looks a little bit like Jim Jones? <laughs> I hadn't oh. thought about it, but he oh. certainly does. <laughs> my God, I saw that. And I'm like, holy shit. If he starts saying white knights, we're out. We're out. Right, right, right. Sorry. He seemed like a very lovely person, but he looked a lot like Jim Jones to me. And it was fun to watch him play because he was doing some things like not necessarily just hitting the drum. He was kind of dragging his hand across it and it would make a different sound. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's brilliant. Yeah. I I have Mm -hmm. none of that in me. No musical talent whatsoever. (laughs) Yes, I know. Exactly. I'm like... (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to just know Lawrence Welk. I'm glad I'm learning about <laughs> other music of this time. Lawrence Welk. However. Off. <laughs> but I mean, that that's comparable, right? In the time frame. It's so lame. Yes, that is very lame. Especially Ugh. considering Woodstock was happening at this time with a Ugh. lot of other artists that were not Lawrence Welk. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm telling you, without some of these Black artists and their contributions, we would not have the other. Oh, absolutely. We would not. I agree with that 100%. We would have just Lawrence Welk all the time. I know. (laughs) A narrow miss. A narrow miss for us. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for your contribution. Indeed. Let's talk about the moon landing. Let's do. That's one of those things that people talk about all the time and you think, I just feel like what it's an event that the entire world kind of watched together. And I don't feel like those events happen anymore, but it was Sunday, July 20th, 1969 during the festival, as it were, they landed on the, the moon for the first time. And as you hear it, you know, prior to this, it was like this big event. People got together. They knew what was happening. They watched the TV. They had parties. Mm-hmm. It was a big to do. That's a white person's perspective completely. They took the news crews and they went out to this festival. They went to Harlem and they asked people about it. And I fucking love their responses. Every one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. One guy's like, I think it's very important, but I don't think it's more important than this festival going on right here. Of course not. This affects your life. That doesn't. One guy said, as far as science goes and everyone involved, it's beautiful. But for me, I couldn't care less. It was money wasted that could have been used to feed the poor. Yeah. 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 And I thought... I mean, I've never heard that argument before, but it is relevant. Yeah. I mean, could we take care of people first before we, (laughs) right? you know, go buy shiny stuff? Yeah. They also, I see a quick clip of James Baldwin. At least I'm pretty sure it's James Baldwin. And I'm pretty sure a blurb from Red Fox. Was that not Red Fox? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. I'm like, it it looked just like him, but I guess it could have been someone else and I just didn't pay attention, but. I mean, it could have been, they did not label him, but I was like, oh yeah. But again, not big fans of the way the billions or whatever of dollars, it could have been used to, to better people's lives, but they did, they chose not to do it that way. So Yeah. Every single one of them had the same response of sure. Awesome. That money could have been more wisely spent. And even Jesse Jackson mm-hmm. had said that, what the fuck? There are people here suffering and you're going to the moon. There's nothing there. Wake up. And Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was the first time I think I've ever seen that other perspective, that other side of it. And Exactly. Yes, I agree so much. And you feel kind of dumb for not having a thought of it yourself. <laughs> like, at least I did. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. that's a great point. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, shit. Just, in our defense, we weren't alive then, so it doesn't really affect our lives either. But yeah. So it's not something we talk about often. So I feel a little bit better, but you're right. I felt stupid for not having realized. I don't know. Yeah, that's how I felt too. I was like, we're only taught one perspective. Like, what a great success that it was. Nobody ever talks about the fact that did we did we need to do this? <laughs> what did we gain here? Is the only reason we did this because Russia did it or was in space and we wanted to beat them at something? I'm fucking sure of it. America has to be the best except at feeding mm. people. We don't mm. really worry too much about that. So still a problem. Or keeping them healthy or mm-hmm. making sure they can have a house or survive at all. You know, then just it's just in general. Pull yourself yeah. up by your bootstraps. Right on, right on. Mm-hmm. Roger Paris talks about how, you know, at that time, people weren't weren't concerned about the moon. They were concerned about their everyday lives and the realities of every day. And one of the big problems in Harlem at the time was heroin. I was not aware of this either. Why would I be, I guess? Um, but he talked about he was addicted for like 16 years. He lost his family. He lost his job. Uh, it's so hard. And there were... There was a lot of people and businesses leaving from Harlem. So you have a lot of an exodus, which mm-hmm. which brings the entire economy down for the city or the town or a borough. I'm not sure what Harlem is considered to New York as its own city. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you have if you have people leaving, they're not spending money there. If you have businesses leaving, then there aren't jobs there. And so people have to try to survive without that. And it just brings everything down. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of in contrast to what some of the other festival attendees talked about. Like Harlem was like a, a place of rich culture. And so you're kind of mm-hmm. seeing two sides of the coin here. Like it's eroding some of the good stuff with all mm-hmm. of that trouble with drugs. And I mean, yeah, it sucks. It does suck. I think one person put it in perspective. They showed uh, it's a, it's a clip, a television clip of someone and I didn't get their name. They didn't give them the name, but he said the U S is a gross national product of nearly a trillion dollars. The money's here. Any country that can fight an unpopular war, this is during Vietnam, uh, spend more money on weapons than any other single item and send the man to the moon. We have the money to solve these problems. We're just choosing not to solve these problems. It's a choice. And we still haven't figured that out. Oh, oh, we know exactly what we need to do. Yeah. It's again, it's an act we of just choice do to it. not do it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about the fact that they had a ventriloquist on the stage at one point? <laughs> and also Moms Mabley, mm-hmm. who is a too. famous comedian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I assume that they had to have some transition stuff because people were changing over instruments and whatnot. So there must have been like copious plate spinning and whatever and we just <laughs> happened to see the ventriloquist so i hope that um everybody who made balloon animals or whatever they all were invited to come and show you know their talents and whatnot so yeah absolutely but then you also got to see again stevie wonder and he's so young he was 19 he said 19 he was a baby yeah. oh right but he talks about being able to feel the energy of the crowd and how exciting it mm-hmm. was to be there. And, you know, and through his career, how they would tell him, oh, you can't sing this and you can't say that. And he's, 
he said essentially in his brain he's like fuck off but he didn't say that because he's classier than i am (laughs) he thought it he thought it (laughs) right so despite the potential effects on his career he's speaking out about hot button topics of the day and i didn't Mm -hmm. realize that he was a controversial figure I mean, the I just called to say I love you guys. Yes, yes. Our experience is from the 80s. <laughs> so right. what I love is that Chris Rock is on here and he was talking about how famous Stevie Wonder was that he could have just kind of sat and rested with the fame that he had and not really create anything new and not evolve. But he didn't. He continued to make hits forever. So he's just an amazing Thank God he artist. did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Stevie Wonder song? I don't know off the top of my head. I can't tell you the last time I actually listened to Stevie Wonder, which is horrible. I was thinking maybe Superstitious might be mine. It's very funky. That is a good funky song. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be in my head. And now after this, I'm going to go <laughs> put it on my phone so I have it in my playlist. That's There are several people that I had to go back and be like, I haven't listened to them for a while, so I have to go put them on my phone. Because if you don't hear it, and it's not part of your regular playlist... You know, you forget sometimes. It is pretty amazing to have all the music you ever want to listen to at your fingertips at any time. I know. And you don't have to, you don't have to put in a cassette. You don't have to rewind. You don't have to cue it up or turn it over to listen to the other (laughs) side. It's amazing. It doesn't skip like a CD or a record. Uh, Mm -mm. It's amazing. And you can literally take it anywhere. Thanks Mm -hmm. to your phone. So Charlene kind of comes back. And she's talking to us a little bit about, as a journalist, she made the proactive choice to use the word black in one of her articles rather than Negro, only to have it changed back by a white editor. So she basically freaks out and writes this giant memo and they were able to get it changed back. Mm -hmm. But even that was controversial and I had no idea. Well, I thought it was interesting because I think it was Daryl who said it was about 1969 that they left the word Negro behind and they were becoming black. Mm -hmm. But he said that in the early 60s, if someone called you black, it meant they wanted to fight. Mm -hmm. And he didn't give more information about that. But that was an interesting transition then to where this is why we're defined. We're going to we're going to be black and we're going mm-hmm. to love it. And they were empowering themselves. They were taking a word for themselves and, and using it to empower themselves. And I love it. I love it. They weren't using the word that was given to them for them mm-hmm. by white people. And, and I think it's good. I mean, anytime you can take back that ownership of yourself is absolutely, you should do it. And I think it's, True to say that words have meaning, right? They convey a lot and the word choices convey a lot. And it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's good, like you said, to kind of have some ownership over things. But yeah, I think it's funny that people are like, it's just a word, it doesn't matter. Um, Guess what? There's a word out there that's going to be said to you that's really going to make you feel a certain way. And that choice to say that to you was on purpose. So, Mm -hmm. and it's, It's you're right. Words are words. It's how you use them. It's the connotation. And that's why I never really cared about my kids using cuss words so much because they're just words. They don't mean anything. Now, if you use them in a specific way, it's going to be harmful. And I don't want you to use any words that are harmful to others unless Mm -hmm. it's necessary, you know, 
there are times when you need to call a man a douche. It just happens. But <laughs> normally try to be respectful, but they're just words. They're mm-hmm. words. It's the context. And yeah. you're right. They can be powerful and harmful. And I wish people would fucking learn more words. <laughs> Sorry. Read a book. Yeah. You can be on the right side of this or the wrong side of this. It's up to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? So I don't, I don't know. It's just crazy to think about it. I mean, this is almost in my lifetime and I'm just like, that's crazy to me to think about that. This was still a, a thing that people were dealing with. You know what? And they're probably still dealing with it today. And that to me is. <sighs> yes, you're right. It's not like we've moved on from this at no. all. No, sadly we've regressed. It's we've so regressed. sad. <laughs> yes. Here we are. Yeah. And Denise talks about, she dropped out of college in 1969 to make a revolution. And she started the Young Lords Party in New York. And they were working essentially along with the Black Panthers. They had similar goals and worked together and tried to be activists for the Black community. Mm -hmm. During the time the festival was going on, there were 21 Black Panthers locked up in New York City. And so they really brought that to light and tried to convey that to the crowd, like, hey, we're celebrating, but there are people who can't for probably no reason other than they were somewhere they weren't supposed to be because someone said they weren't supposed to be there. Like, you know what I mean? This is in theory after Jim Crow, but I feel like a lot of those rules are still in place, right? So, and it's the North, so it shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, change takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sonny Chirac is a guitarist. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's another kind of, this is not somebody that I was familiar with, but the way he plays, again, it's, you're carried away because you're Mm -hmm. watching him and he's so into what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And here's Greg Tate again, who's talking about black musical expression includes like showing rage, showing trauma, you know, connecting with the pain of the times. And you can really see that on a lot of the performers as like their facial expressions, because you would think like. I don't know. It's it's really funny to see some of the ways that they express themselves because it's just so powerful. Yep. And I am very waspy and I don't like to express anything that's not positive. It's hard. Right. So I really admire people for really putting it out there for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was a form of therapy too. It's somewhat therapeutic to get that emotion out. Mm-hmm. So good for them for having that outlet. We hear from Raul Roach, who's the son of Mac Roach, and he was talking about his dad put a song out called It's Time. And he's like, he wasn't trying to be slick or like sneaky with the message. He was like, <laughs> straight up, this is right. our time. We want liberation. This is needs to happen. But his record company wasn't real interested in politics. So I think he had a problem putting it out, out. But he did play it at the festival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stupid records. <laughs> also, we have Abby Lincoln mm-hmm. and she and Max Roach were kind of a bit of a power couple. So there's some footage of her seeing again, a stunning performance, mm-hmm. just being unapologetic and out there. And I, um, it was really neat to see that. We see a performance by Hugh Mescala, Mescala. He's a South African musician. And we talked to his son, Salima, And he had talked about his dad leaving South Africa to get away from apartheid. And he comes to America and lands right in the middle of the civil rights movement. And I don't know if that would be like, oh, fuck, here we go again. Or if it would have been like energizing, like, all right, at least we're fighting for it. As opposed to apartheid, 
mm-hmm. they felt like they probably couldn't fight for it. So maybe he felt like here he had a chance to help fight and move this forward. Right. The song Grazing in the Grass was kind of the big hit that they kind of talk a little bit about. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't know who sang that, but I know the song. Right? Catchy as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I love how he said he realized that there was a hunger in African-Americans to kind of feel and taste what it would be like to be African, to be from Africa. And Mm -hmm. so his music was like a link for them to feel that way. And that's good. Everyone should feel connected to their countries. Sure. Because our country is from everywhere. Our people are from everywhere. Well, except for the indigenous and they would probably like us to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're, um, our culture is just to be a plague of locusts that just move in and destroy everything else. It's neat. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Let's talk about Nina Simone. Let's do. You guys, Nina Simone is one of my favorite artists of all time. Absolutely love Nina Simone. She comes out and sings a couple of songs and reads a poem that someone else wrote. And she's just... She's so powerful. She's one of those people that makes you feel everything she's singing. Mm -hmm. Someone said that she looked like an African princess, and I agree. She was stunning. Stunning. That's exactly what I wrote in my notes. Her presence, I mean, you couldn't take your eyes off of her. Mm -mm. Just, I don't know. I think I love her. I do love her. (laughs) I do love her. And... I love that they said that she took the barriers that were in front of her because she didn't have an easy life. She took these barriers and she threw it back at people. She sang about it right to their faces. Listen, motherfucker, I know what you're doing and I'm not okay with it. (laughs) Yep. So she sings Backlash Blues, kind of a protest song. She sings To Be Young, Gifted and Black, which is almost a ballad. It's almost a love song and it's really lovely. Mm -hmm. Charlene discusses that Nina provides hope to people. I mean, she's just a symbol and just held in really high esteem and it's lovely. Yeah. She's like, listen, we're going to fucking fight. Mm -hmm. We're ready for it. Uh, Yeah. Absolutely love her. Charlene also talks about how she and her classmate were the first two black students to desegregate the university of Georgia. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be for them? The black people, not the white people. I'm sure they felt like they were terrorized, but they weren't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. So she talks about she wanted to be a journalist. They had that program at um, University of Georgia. She was there for a few nights, and there were riots. There were riots on campus. Mm-hmm. And also her living conditions, and she lived on the bottom floor. A lot of other women lived on the second floor. And they were kind of terrorize her with, like, making noise and beating on the floor. And she said, Nina, she was with Nina, Nina Sapone. She had her record and would play it and it brought mm-hmm. her some peace. And I loved that. Just turn it up, turn that shit up. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of towards the end. They talk about how the festival was a rose and concrete. I think that's a great metaphor. Mm-hmm. They took a maligned community and showed they could all come together and enjoy the music and the culture and do it peacefully and just have a great experience. Everyone had a great experience, but they talk about as soon as it was done, it was forgotten. They said that even though the shows were recorded all summer, it felt like that it happened and then they threw it away, which they Mm -hmm. didn't. They stored it, thankfully. But the minute, as previously mentioned, the minute Woodstock came out, it was a big to do. 
because white people cannot fucking control themselves and made a massive shit up there. <laughs> and so right. they were not interested in this black show, or as someone called it, the black Woodstock. Mm-hmm. I-, I felt bad because they talked about this is not an anomaly. Black history gets erased all the time. So it's nice to bring this back. It's nice to have it out there again to show it so people can start learning more about black history and their contributions. Like we said, fuck man, half of our music, if not more, would not be here without these people making this music. Mm -hmm. So I really think it needs to be, I think we need as white people to take some time to educate ourselves on their history. I mean, this is stuff that happened on American soil. (laughs) It's not, you know, we seem to be fine teaching and learning and embracing European history. Yeah. But we can't take a look at the parts of our own history that are uncomfortable. But how are we supposed to learn and not do it again if we don't educate ourselves about it? It is uncomfortable, but you have to Mm -hmm. fucking learn it. You have to learn it. Um, I like how they kind of ended the show with Sly and the Family Stone singing higher and having the crowd Mm -hmm. sing with them. Yep. And then they saw Musa crying as he's watching this Mm -hmm. film of the festival. And I love what he says. He says, when you put memories away, sometimes you don't know if they're real or not. Cause he was just a little kid. And he said, Mm -hmm. this is confirmation, not only that it happened, but how beautiful it was. And I love that statement. Right. It kind of reminded me of when we did the documentary kid 90 and so Moon Fry was saying, mm-hmm. like, did I remember it accurately? Right. And it applies here as well. You know, you're getting visual confirmation that your memories are right. And it's just really comforting. Yeah. And it's sweet because you can see it on his face how much he appreciates it. Yeah. I love this documentary so much. Not only because of all of the amazing music and the footage and the clothes and the people who were just enjoying life Mm -hmm. and able to escape maybe their problems for a short period of time and just enjoy for a little bit and sing and dance. Mm -hmm. But I love that they're bringing this history back to us. And I love that Questlove was able to do it and he did a great job. It was amazing. It was lovely. I enjoyed it as well. And I, I liked to watch the people enjoy being alive. Yeah. At a time that it was probably really difficult. (laughs) Yeah. Still is. Yeah. So loved it. It's a good one. Okay. So let's talk about next week. Yeah. What are we doing next week? We're going to do a documentary called Descendant. This one's on Netflix because we're getting back to Netflix because we love them. Maybe they'll sponsor us. Right. I know. That'd be lovely. They just have a great selection right now and it's available to everybody. So that's what I like about it. Well, most people. An hour and 49 minutes is the runtime for this, released in 2022. And this is the story of the descendants of the slaves that were brought over on the last illegal slave ship. Yeah. I think it'll be a really interesting watch. I don't think it's going to be an easy one. Mm, I don't either. But mm-hmm. an important one to watch. Yeah, I think it's going to bring forward some big topics. But I'm looking forward to being a little wiser, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. And if I cry, guys, just (laughs) don't hold it against me. Beyond this, we'll ask you guys to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at GoDocYourself. And thanks for joining us today.
Yes. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the documentary and the episode. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk again next week. All right. Sounds great. Later. Bye. Yeah, we'll